Hello and welcome back to the Marathon Bet Boot Room to the Boardroom and Everything in Between podcast. In this episode, we'll be discussing the murky world of transfers. Don't forget, stick around to the end of the show where Simon and I will be given a chance. Marathon Bet are giving us the money to have a charity bet, three games that we think we can make a few bob on. That's coming up later on the show. And here's a taste of what's to come. Harry Redknapp said to me, it's important that you get Neil on a weight clause. <laughs> so I didn't quite know what I was signing. But that always. You were signing in... a boxer rather than a yeah, footballer. Yeah, I, I was signing a sumo wrestler rather than a, <laughs> rather than a footballer. I mean, there were transactions that I did that I didn't like. I didn't like Spurs' conduct over Wayne Routledge, a player that I developed couldn't be transferred to Spurs because it's ten to twelve. Daniel, we can't do the transfer. Oh no, no, the player is sitting outside White Hart Lane. Oh, oh, is he now? Okay, well that transfer definitely won't be happening. I get to learn my full name at Millwall, which is Simon. You're an effing W Jordan when yeah. I walk in the stadium. Ruddock doesn't play. I asked Stevie Copper why he doesn't play. He says, because we haven't got a pair of shorts big enough for him. That can't be true. It's true. <laughs> Transfers are a huge thing. If you're a football fan, they're part of your lifeblood. They're one of the things you live for. Who will be coming and going from your club? We love them. I doubt if it's a sentiment shared by Simon Jordan. Transfer, Simon? They have their moments. They have their challenges and their moments. Listen, we'll get on to some individual um, transfers that you made during your time as Crystal Palace owner in a second. But I'd love to understand, I'm sure the people listening would love to understand as well, the build-up to a transfer. I'm sure they vary from ones that you've been scouting for two years to ones where an agent just rings you up and says, here we go, have a go at this. Tell me about the average build-up to a transfer, if you can. Do, is it usually someone you've scouted for months? Yeah, well, there's two kinds of transfers. There's a transfer for the beginning of a season where you're full of optimism, full of beans, and full of uh, you know euphoria about what's about to come. And there's the transfer that come in the, in the January transfer window, which I often describe the, the bastion of bad business, where you're trying to fix something. You're chasing something. If you're in a Premier League and you're desperately trying not to be relegated, you're trying to fix something. If you're trying to kick on in the Premier League to perhaps go into the, into the Champions League and you've got a problem somewhere... It, it's remedial transfers that, that the January window... Sticking plasters. Yeah, and, and of course, that's relevant to which division you're in. It, it doesn't matter if you're in League Two or if you're in the Premier League. It's all comparable finances to the relevant division that you're in. So whilst I didn't always enjoy these marketplaces, they were approached at different ways. So as I say, the, the August window was one about, OK, more often than not in my cases because I had a new manager yeah. um, just arrived and was looking to, to build his own squad... And in the January window, it's because I'd more often not fired a manager <laughs> and was trying to help him build a squad. So different dynamics. OK, well, talk to me about the way clubs do this, because uh, you're talking about the way Crystal Palace did it, but we see in recent times the rise of things like... Directors um, of football. And, and, and committees, transfer committees. Um, but, but other clubs, and traditionally, the manager would go and bang on the, uh, the owner's door and says, I'd need four and a half million quid to buy Dave Bloggs. Yeah, well, there's a combination of two. I think there is a, a long-term plan and a short-term plan. Obviously, if you've got a fit football club, you'll have a variety of different components. One, you'll have a youth development policy, which is bringing young players through, a la Phil Foden at Manchester City, or some of the youth development going on at Tottenham or other football clubs, Palace being one in one most recently with Juan Pesaka. There's also the, the scouting network that you've built that will be looking around. There's very few secrets in football they anymore. They can't be, can they? There are opportunities to do deals because football clubs find themselves in distressed circumstances that others can capitalise on, but more often than not, there are very few secrets. Back in the day when Arsene Wenger appeared over the horizon and opened up that door that brought in the Nicholas and Elkers of the world, is not so... Is not he so, knew what was going on at yeah, Fontaine, yeah, the, the National he, Training Centre. He brought a uniqueness to it all. But, you know, now you've got this gold rush. There's gold in them hills for football agents with young players being brought out of here, there and everywhere. 
Now, ultimately, you know, the scouting networks should be bringing in due diligence and information around players for football managers and for football chief executives or directors of football, football chairman to consider. But football is a very reactionary business. Anyone that says and sits and believes that there's long-term plans and long-term thinking, I know you see transfers like Naby Keita happening at Liverpool yeah. a year in advance to when they actually do manifest themselves. That's more to do with finances and football clubs being able to secure revenues uh, earlier in the game. But most of the time, it is filling gaps that come out of information that's been gained or garnered relatively recently. If you look at, say, Liverpool now, thinking about what they'll need next year, it'll be because of what's happened in the last three or four or five or six months in certain parts of their team. So a good scouting network will be bringing information. It should be bringing information through in a certain fashion. And managers that are that are, that are building a football club, that are given the opportunity to build a football club, because they're going the right way, can have a slightly more long-term thinking. But most of the time, it's reactionary. You see people like Harry Redknapp going to sign Christopher Samba for Queen's Park Rangers. Again, for, again, <laughs> for fortunes that make no commercial sense because they're sticking Band-Aids over it. The most important thing, I think, as an owner of a football club is to get some coherency behind your thinking because often the guys beneath you don't have that coherency. There's a famous story. It's not a million years ago, but it was when, I mean, of course, it involves one of your ex-managers. Um, that moment where Peter Taylor was in charge of the England team for one game. Do you remember he did two things? He made David Beckham captain, captain which of course yeah. was a good idea and stuck forever, and he brought in a load of previously uncapped players. Yep. So much so that on the way to the game, the Italian manager... Um, let it be known on the coach that he hadn't a clue half the England squad were. Against, yeah. And one of the Italian midfielders, his name escapes me at the moment, had, was playing one of the very early versions of football manager, mm. championship manager it was then, and was able to pull up stats about all the players and show them to him. To what extent is all this now, I mean, that's sort of another world, to what extent is this all electronicised <coughs> now? That we have so many, so many stats, like money boys. To what extent well, is that happening? Do always, you know? There's always been an element of that, Danny, and it was always often about videos or DVDs of players. And, of course, no one's going to send a bad DVD of a player because ultimately you wouldn't get a player bought and sold. I'm not a huge fan of statistics and, and looking at that sort of mentality. I know certain clubs have... You know, I know Brentford deploy that logic, mm. and I know other clubs have been very keen on looking at some sort of metric that you know evaluates why a player should be bought and why a player shouldn't be bought. It it's difficult because on one hand I'm I'm a believer in statistics and and reasons and rhyme behind the wind blowing from the west, and a lot of transfers are based upon a manager's perspective and a manager's vantage point. I don't agree with player committees. I do believe that a football manager should have the choice of which player he wants. He should have nothing to do with the economics of it. He should not be involved in the negotiation. The days of Bob Paisley or Brian Clough or Bill Shankly negotiating transfer deals in rooms with, with players and their families on their agents have long gone because the skills are so significant. But I, I do believe that a football manager should, should be able to select his player. And this, you know when you hear people like Brendan Rodgers when they were at Liverpool saying, I wasn't involved in the player selection, I don't believe that. I believe no. they might not have got their number one choice. Ah. But I think they should they should manage football managers. No one in this world, Danny, I don't get what I want every single time and neither do you. So neither should a football manager. Look at where should, I am now. They should, yeah, look at <laughs> who you're opposite, again, opposite to. But I think that the, the thinking is often not joined up. But it's very difficult. It depends upon the ownership model. It was always very difficult for me because I sat there looking at the reasons why and didn't agree with some of the reasons being advanced by my manager. Then I was put into a different conundrum, which is if I don't agree with your reasons then am I agreeing with your appointment? If I'm not agreeing with your appointment, what am I doing supporting you? And around and around we go. Let me ask you a difficult question because you might get in trouble with the FA. Oh, hang on, you don't care. How much of this stuff goes on outside the transfer window and outside of the obvious 
conduits of manager, player, and agent, i.e., how much tapping of it up. could how much of it could be described as tapping up? So I presume it's going on all the well, time. I, I always thought that was a ridiculous concept, tapping up, because. A, if you're going to, how do you enforce it? B, if you're going to enforce it, then really start sanctioning the people that are the main beneficiaries of tapping up, which are the players themselves that are complicit in it, complicit in it, a la Virgil van Dijk, you know, attending meetings that he knows he's not supposed to, and then ultimately he'll be the beneficiary of a move. It goes on, it will go on all the time, because the agent fraternity will talk. They will talk to the player. They will talk to you know various football clubs. They will be looking to orchestrate moves and deals because agents don't make money from clubs being from players being in situ at a club. They more often not make money from a player moving between clubs. So the transfer market for me was always a slightly difficult one because you are as an owner. When I first walked through the door and I can remember the first signings that I made, I I did my first ever deal was to go down to London Conley which is Arsenal's training ground. Sure. And uh, and to be told to put little blue bags on my feet because Arsene Wenger had this idea that <gasps> no one should walk upon the hallowed surface within the confines of the, the training area. Oh, just the pitch? No, no, at the pitch, the indoor surfaces, oh, the God. hydrotherapy pools, you had to wear little blue bags over you. And I got to spend time with David Dean doing his very best Fagan impression of how he was going to help me in my new little career in football and selling me players for twice the price that they were worth. David uh, keeps turning up in these podcasts yeah, and I'm sure he'll continue yeah, to I mean, do absolutely. so. <laughs> and the, t- the first two players I bought you know, were were a player called Tommy Black and a player called Julian Gray. You know, Black and Gray. You know, in terms of uh, that was never my dynamic. But uh, you know, the the first experience I had with buying players was to deal with the fraternity that I always had trouble with, which was the agent world, because I never understood the dynamic of an agent coming in, creating a scenario for a deal that didn't work for you. Before we get onto that. Can you remember, you went and bought Black and Grey. Yeah. Um, can you remember? You, you yes, got, I can. You, I mean, you, you talked to me before about this being Simon Jordan BC before yeah. cynicism. How excited were you about it? I mean, because fans, we just, and anyone who plays Championship Manager, Football Manager, any of those games, the, the matches are nice. The important thing is, is getting big transfers done or even little ones. Yeah. I mean, my nature was to want to do deals. And I brought that nature into football, which meant that if you're only the only person in a room with integrity, sometimes it's not that clever to be in that room. And what I came into football with was Sort of, sort of Bambi-esque outlook of saying, I want to be part of every aspect of this transaction. So I want to be in there acquiring players. I want to be in there seeing the whites of their eyes. And I want to be in there negotiating with the agents. Very quickly, you realise that actually you don't. So there's sort of there was two sort of Simon Jordans in my time at Palace. There was a Simon Jordan BC, which is before cynicism, when I was in there like... You know, George out of Mice and Men, all enthusiastic with the idea of, oh, Lenny, I can buy a player. Right? And then you realise that you're in an auction bidding against yourself and that you're trying to make a deal happen with one side of the table taking everything from you and offering nothing back. You give them a bonus in exchange for a reduced salary. They take the bonus and raise the salary higher. So you're negotiating with your chin in, in, these, sort of, <laughs> in these sort of scenarios. So my first experiences were to sign these two kids from Arsenal where David did me the routine favour of sending me each player for half a million quid that never made a first-team game for Arsenal. And I signed uh, Tommy Black from David Manassi, who people will probably know as Jonathan Barnett's partner, and went on to do, at the time, the world record transfer of Gareth Bell between wow. Tottenham and Real Madrid. So my first experience of the agency world, and I don't know what it says about David, because given my attitude towards agents there and afterwards, was that uh, the first player I bought was, was David Manassi's charge. Did you always want to meet a player before you started paying their wages, before they signed the contract? Is it possible? Did you want to do that? I did. And a lot of the players that I signed, you know, went up from Tommy Black and Julian Gray up to, you know, Neil Ruddock and other players that we can talk about that mm. I signed. I wanted to meet these players because I felt that there was a need to understand. Once you realise that players, to some extent, 
will sit in a, in a transaction, mute, have nothing to add, are really... It's something they're doing because often or not there's a commercial opportunity, a financial benefit for but them. But you want to know if, they're gonna, if they really want to play for Crystal Palace. Yeah, every now and again, what you get is an opportunity to see something from a football player that you very rarely see, which is something that they, they mean what they say and they say what they mean. More often than not, you go into a meeting with players, even down to one of my favourite players, Andrew Johnson, and they sit there like mutes. And what they want the, what they want to happen is their agent to deliver the bad news of what they really want, which is twice the price that you're prepared to pay for them. So I did want that. I did want to see that. But what I realised further down the line was players cared about me to some extent as much as I might care about them which is you know at that particular moment in time not a lot because you, you famously decided that in your mind when even when you came into this because of where you came from the telephony industry that players were commodities yeah. it's okay for them to look at you as a cash machine <laughs> Yeah, well, I, I I just felt that unlike you know people like Paul Kemsley at Spurs used to go out dancing with Jeremy Redknapp, I wasn't really interested in meeting the players and socialising with them. I want you know how much I liked them, how good they were at their jobs. What I wanted to do when I first worked, walked in was be able to believe that I was looking at somebody that meant what they said. What I learned very quickly was that football is a slightly duplicitous world, a slightly disingenuous world. What's up is down, what's black is white. It's often through the looking glass, and you might as well let people in that room that speak to them in their language get a deal done within the confines of what you're prepared to accept and hope that they're going to deliver on their side of the bargain because you'll be damn sure that you'll have to deliver on your side which is pay them come rain or shine or whatever their performance is. Placing a bet? It's exhausting running around looking for the best odds. Don't waste your breath. It's time you check Marathon Bet. Before you place your acker this week, check Marathon Bet first. You may find we're best priced. And better odds mean bigger winnings. Download the Marathon Bet app or visit marathonbet.co.uk. 18plusbgambleware.org. Talk to me about the physical process these days. In the old days, and I know this to be true, for instance, where, you know, a million years ago when Spurs were the biggest spending club um, in Britain, that's a long time ago Blimey. now. That's yeah, sure. Well, but Bill Nicholson, the then, then legendary manager, used to drive to motorway cafes and sign the players in motorway cafes, meet them halfway from wherever, wherever they were coming from, and all the rest of it. What what happens now? Is it is it very sterile the whole thing? And yeah. obviously, so much money involved. Is it a lot of lawyers? I hate to think it. I just want well, to hear football I mean, people. You know, if you listen to our mate Jim White, you know, lights, camera, and action, you'll think it's all going on at 100 miles an hour. Transactionally, you know, the simplest part of the transaction is often doing the deal with the football club that you're buying from. That's the easy part. So Palace say to Club X, we'll give you four yeah, million quid. I mean, if it, of course, if it was Birmingham, and between myself and Birmingham, it would have been a very difficult transaction because if it was dealing with David Gold or David Sullivan or Karen Brady at the time, it would have been a straightforward no, go forth and multiply. Yeah. Um, um, but more often than not, the transaction itself was very sterile. It's a case of doing a deal with a football club, meeting, meeting evaluation, doing the commercials. I always looked for a deal to be the financial side of it with the football club to be as spread out as I possibly could to pay the player transfer fee of as long as I possibly could. Why? Because cash flow was at the heart of my business thinking. You know, I came from a business that I started with 15 grand, turned into 100 million quid, and cash flow was at the centre of it. So I wanted my cash to flow. So if I'm going to buy, if I'm going to bite the bullet and pay five million pounds for a player that I really think is about two million, but my manager wants him, I can swallow it if I've got to pay it for it over three years. So you make that happen commercially. You do a deal with a football club you're buying from. Then becomes the challenge, which is getting the player and his agent in to be able to negotiate the terms that work. And more often than not, there becomes the struggle because you're dealing in a situation where the whole dynamics of what you, what you think the, the real world works under, which is someone sitting in a room representing a player, negotiating for that player, then purports to work for you, so you can pay twice the price of what you want for the that, player. What, what do you mean? I hear you saying this about you're negotiating against yourself. What do you mean by that? Well, you, if you, the player comes in, he's got, he's got an agent. The agent is trying to get the best deal for the player. And that's entirely appropriate. 
But when you've in the world of football, which is very different from lots of other sides of commerce or business or what the average listener can listen to, if you sell your house, you expect to pay a state agent for doing so. Somehow or another, football changed direction from the Bob Lords of the world in the 1960s with Burnley through to where we are now, which is the balance of power shifted. The players have all the power. Agents came in and negotiate for their client, which they will represent as being the player. And then when the end of the negotiation comes, they'll tell you is you because they've managed to convince the player to accept the terms, which are twice what you wanted to pay as the owner for the player, which the agent has got for him. And then the agent will turn around and say, I can't recommend this deal to my client which is the player and not you, unless you pay me. Clear as mud? It gets clearer. No. So in, in, in fact, and possibly against the rules, people end up getting paid by both ends of the transfer. The, well, that, that change you know, for dual representation, duality, that they can actually get paid both ends. Where I own a famously the Pogba yeah, deal of Manchester United. Well, the regulations, when I, when I first walked into football, and I, I, I understand that people outside of football and people... Uh, alongside football, like the transfer marketplace and like the transfer windows. I was never a fan of the transfer windows. I think it's created a culture of football clubs not being able to trade in a certain way. And sometimes football clubs, certainly out of the Premier League, need to be able to sell their assets to be able to balance their books, and they can't unless they sell them in, in, in between uh, June and at the end of August and and from beginning so of January I'm, to I'm, the end. Actually, I was going to talk to you about the idea of transfer windows themselves. I mean, I've never had a proper explanation as to why they were needed. I mean, I'm old enough to remember when players could just move between clubs at any time during the season, except for the last three weeks. I have to be honest... Without being too scientific about it, I think it's a load of cobblers. I do not understand why they think they why, why they ever needed it. It makes no sense at all to me. No, me either. I mean, I think there was a lot of lobbying, a lot of rallying going. I think people like Alex Ferguson had a lot to say at the time about the manner in which it disrupted people's opportunities. Where it's easy for teams like Manchester United, they've got checkbooks that they can write a check out, be able to bid for what they want, close the books very early or late, depending upon how they want to operate their business. But it isn't so great for other businesses that operate in a certain way. So I always disliked it and I thought it created a culture where agents can create brinkmanship. The only beneficiaries of it in the long game were players and ultimately football agents, more often than not. And to some extent, selling clubs because they're able to let you know leverage a football club at the last minute, which is why you see so much brinkmanship going on. But the, the convoluted nature of transfer activity is often brought about by the differences of opinion on valuation more often than not, not between football clubs, but between the player and the club that's about to acquire his services. Because you've got to remember, most football players don't come to a football club they supported. They've come there for a commercial transaction, whether it's because they have ambitions to go and play for a Manchester City, unless you're Sanchez and didn't want to go for the best club in the country, wanted to go one that paid the most money. But How's that gone for him so yeah, far? Yeah, done, done well so far for him. Shows you the certain cultures of modern-day footballers that I think we should all deplore, which is that it's all about money. It has to be about money. There's nothing wrong with being in the business of football for money, but it should also be about the ability of what you produce at the end of it. Also, never... if it's all about money, I suspect you make bad decisions all down the line. But Danny, I don't know about you, but I've never had an issue with... When people talk about footballers, they say, oh, he's getting paid 200 grand a week, he's bleeding useless. I've always thought it's not about how much he's getting paid, it's about how he's playing. And you should pay somebody what they're worth, but at the end of it, they should be worth what they're paid. And it's always about not being worth what they're paid. The same as great musicians. I'm happy to pay them whatever it is that they need to get, as long as I can see them play something brilliantly. I have to say, when I see... I don't know, in my case, Christian Eriksen, who doesn't get the corner past the near post, then the 200 grand does come into my mind. I've got to be honest, because I could kick a ball beyond the near yeah, post. Yeah, I mean, I went to Cardiff and Fulham on Saturday and seeing players on 50 grand a week, and I don't think anything resembled vaguely anything like football. No, you saw but, a shocker there. Yeah, I did. 
At what stage, and I asked you just about buying the clubs last week mm. on uh, the Marathon Bet Boot Room to the Boardroom podcast. Given what's happened with Emiliano Sala this year, and I understand this is also in, in an illegal place at the moment, yeah. at what stage do you say, right, there's Dave Bloggs, he's a fantastic centre forward, and he is now our player? Well, good protocol and good order would necessarily uh, assimilate the fact that the moment this player signed for you, that he would join an aspect of what you provide for your squad, which would be insurance cover. I mean, the situation with this one is so dreadfully difficult to yeah, comprehend. I'm not asking really, really for you. And I'm not, not going to judge no. anyone's behaviour or antics that are currently running under under the auspice of discussion, whether it's between Norton and Bordeaux and Cardiff and whatever. But I would have anticipated good order. And a lot of the time, good order doesn't deploy in football. But good order would mean the moment that player was signed, two things would become an obligation. One, that he was insured. And two, that I'd have a financial obligation to meet the payments that I'd agreed with the club that I had agreed to purchase him from. And if something happened between then and then, I would find it very difficult, as much as I may not want to, to find an argument to not be honouring the contract that I've put in place. And now the circumstances we're talking about are beyond the pale of tragic. And they're also beyond anyone else's experience, I guess. So it's... I would I would envisage that the order of events has not manifested themselves. I would envisage, I hasten to add, that somehow or another they've not insured this player. Or the insurance company are contesting the sure. validity and nature and the manner in which he was transported. I don't know. I'm yeah. not across it and neither are you. But I, I, I would suspect that if there was not, unless, of course, this dispute needs to be done by an insurance company to make sure that mitigation is being at the centre of what Cardiff are doing because there's a, a huge insurance claim being put against insurers for the tragic loss of this player's life. Yeah. But more, more for Cardiff's point of view, which is not the most pertinent part, but the finances they're going to have to pay for sure. this player and obviously not receiving him. Now, in the most enormous handbrake turn ever achieved on a podcast, we're going to go from that incredibly serious mm. point to the stuff that I think people really want us to drill down into, the strange and wonderful world. I'll warm you up by talking. I mean, we, you, you meet him and you work with him, and I've worked with him many times. He's a tremendous character. You bought Neil Ruddock. I did. I did. How did that go for you? How was that for a transfer? Yeah, it, well, it wasn't. I don't think it was my finest moment. Um, Neil is one of those that uh, you know flatters to deceive. He's engaging company, and we when I bought yeah, he's fun to be yeah, when I bought Neil at the time, Steve Copper was my manager, and I was a you know a, a fledgling football club chairman coming in wanting to learn the trade, having a strong view, but also knowing that I needed my managers sort of buy into this, and not getting on very well with a manager. So the the signing of Neil Ruddock was brought in to bring stability to this young squad that we were assembling to bring wow. a, to bring a leader in there now that i know here wow to, to bring a captain into the dressing room that was going to set an example now i couldn't have been further from the truth when with neil and the first discussion that i that i that I was led to have was with harry redknapp where harry said to me he was uh, his manager was his manager at west ham yeah uh, it's important that you get neil on a weight clause <laughs> Um, because if you, put, if you put a weight clause in Neil's contract, then you'll get a fit player. So I said, what are we talking about then, H? And he said, um, I think he's at, if he's at 99 kilos, anything above 99 kilos, he's not going to be fit for purpose. 
Now, I sat there, didn't think much of it, and suddenly realised about six months later after I've fined Neil for about 26 weeks in a row that 99 kilos was the best part of 16 stone. <laughs> so I didn't quite know what I was signing, but that always... You were signing in... a boxer rather than a yeah, footballer. Yeah, uh, I was signing a sumo wrestler rather than a, <laughs> rather than a footballer. Uh, and, and Neil came into Punish to create as much mirth and mayhem as he possibly could, including taking my players out, singing, going down three months into the season, and all kinds of lovely stuff that I got to read in the back pages of newspapers, which really endeared me Did he? Did you deny any of that? Um, Neil didn't deny any of that. And, uh, and when, I, when my tolerance of him finally snapped and I brought him into my office, we did have a heart-to-heart, which uh, didn't, didn't go that well for Neil. But um, he, um, he's, a, he's an engaging character, but he's not somebody you want in your dressing room when you're trying to build a, a new football club that's coming out of the ashes. You're a new chairman and you're trying to set an example. Great fun to watch. Great. Get him on James Corden's show, pulling his pants off of Jamie Redknapp, but don't get him in your dressing room. You know, the first game we ever played, I was due to play in, was Millwall away. You know, it's the first, my first time at Millwall. I'm, I get to learn my full name at Millwall, which is Simon, you're an effing W Jordan when yeah. I walk in the stadium. Ruddock doesn't play. I asked Stevie Copple why he doesn't play. He says, because we haven't got a pair of shorts big enough for him. That can't be true. It's true. <laughs> Another one that we wanted to talk about was David Hopkins, the Chelsea player. Yeah, yeah, David. It was funny because um, I see David has gone into management recently back at Bradford. David Hopkins was a Palace legend and had gotten Palace promoted in 1997. I'd bought Palace, I'd spent 10 or 15 million quid straight out of the gate, so I was breaking my neck. Now, you've got to compare some of these figures that we talk about 17, 18 years ago. Yeah, yeah. If you're spending £2 million for a footballer in 2001, that's comparable to 15, 20 million quid now totally. in the championship. Yeah. So we are languishing in the January time of the year in a desperate situation, looking like we're going to be getting relegated. Someone has an epiphany that we should sign David Hopkins back from Bradford. So I fly when up. When you say someone, you must know who. I think it might have actually been me. Ah. <laughs> but I think it was a combination of me and Ray Houghton and Alan Smith. And Ray Houghton was the assistant manager, the old Liverpool player. Yeah. So I flew up to Bradford to meet David Hopkin to sign him. Bradford have just gotten relegated from the Premier League. They're bleeding out of their eyes financially. They've got Benito Carboni's wages on their books for the next 20 years. <laughs> and they're desperate to sell whatever they can. So they've got this out of the you know clear blue sky opportunity to sell a player that no one else wants to buy. So I'm sat there with Geoffrey Richmond, who was the incumbent Bradford chairman, yep. and Sean Harvey, who's now the uh, chief executive of the Football League, uh, sitting in there trying to negotiate a deal. Now, I had a, a, a reputation in commerce of being strident and very robust, but I don't think I've ever witnessed a transfer tra- happen in quite such a way as this. When I walked into a room, David Hopkin comes in, Jeffrey Richmond's sitting there and Jeffrey says, right, okay, David, this is Simon, you, you know, he's the Palace chairman. We've agreed a deal in principle with Palace and you'll be going off to Palace. So David Hopkins says, no, I don't want to. I'm happy here. So Jeffrey Richmond says, well, I don't care where you're happy. I'm not interested in your happiness. In fact, I really don't like you. In fact, I abhor your type. And if you want to stay here, there is no place for you here. And I want you to get it through your head. I do not like you. David Hopkins says, but you've never met me, Chairman. <laughs> I don't care. I do not like you. And somehow or another... That, this is his way of making him walk yeah, the plank, is so, it? Somehow or another, that managed to result in me signing a player that clearly didn't want to come to Crystal Palace, that I paid two million quid for the privilege of him coming to Crystal Palace, paid him 20 grand a week for being there, who then failed a medical eight months later and retired, and I got to pay him three million pounds for leaving. So it was a really... Really interesting baptism of fire. And that's what the business of football does to you. What it does to you, Danny, like any other business, if you don't know your currency and you don't know your trade, you get to learn with your chin. And there's been no other business like football which teaches you that quite as brutally and as blatantly as football. 
And you have to go through that curve. It doesn't matter who you are. You're going to sign players that don't want to play for you. You're going to sign players that aren't fit to play for you. And you're going to sign players that shouldn't be Can I ask you a question because we're friends? And I'm asking this in a public forum, but I think it's, worth, it's okay to ask it. When you first got into this game, you were a bright fella. We all know that and all the rest of it. Do you think the other clubs and their agents and even the players, they took you for a bit of a mug? No, I don't think so. I think that there was an element of my eagerness made me, because of my natural pragmatic nature to want to do a deal, I made deals happen that possibly shouldn't have happened. Now, whether that's people taking advantage of me or whether it's just a learning curve that you go through in whatever you do. So I look at it and say, yeah, you know, I can look at the fact that I took Matthew Upson on loan from Arsenal and, and David Dean told me he was on 10 grand a week and he wasn't, he was on five and think, well, okay, that's a learning curve and it's an expensive just one. just taking off David Dean's name again. David Dean He's again. on your list, isn't but, he? But, you know, you look at these transactions and sometimes it's like marketing spend in a business. You spend a lot of money on a marketing campaign, you don't know it's going to work, you don't do that marketing campaign again. You learn sometimes with your chin, and football is a major exponent of teaching lessons very quickly. Talk to me about players that you bought that I know you uh, didn't end up liking. Shefty Kuchi. I like Shefki. I meant as a player. Oh, no. Yeah, well, I like Shefki, but I just I think the idea that I was in a nightclub in Spain, not wanting, trying to avoid Peter Taylor as much as I possibly could, realizing that there was a distinct possibility I was going to have to buy this player. And then trying to hide in a nightclub, being chased around by people that knew Peter that were in this club, trying to get me onto the telephone. Probably should have told me all I should have known. And the fact that we didn't register Chef Key until two o'clock in the morning and wound back the fax machine, because in the old days, the older days, you used to be able to fax a player's registration across to the... Um, you still have to, the, to use fax, the, I understand. Yeah, I believe so. Unbelievable. But we set the timer back to uh, to, to 11.30 or something. I bet you wish you could have set it back uh, two years. Exactly my point. <laughs> you know, I, I wish I had. But I saw Chef Key the other day. He's a lovely fellow, but uh, didn't quite do it for us there. What about Adiyak Mbaye? Another one. Was that another one of Peter Taylor's? No, Trevor Francis. Oh, Trevor, right. And I love Trevor, you know. But Trevor is a war of attrition. If you want, Trevor wanted a room painted grey, right? You say, well, you're not getting it, Trevor. All right? And periodically, he'd keep coming back to, in the end, you go, just paint the bloody room grey. Right? So Adi Akinbaye was a player that he wanted, and he came to me and said, he's the best defensive centre-forward I've ever seen. So I, I didn't understand this. I'm like, don't we want a centre-forward to score goals? I couldn't care less how defensive he is. I want him to score goals. Trevor wanted him. So in the end, you know, I, sp I think we did a club transfer record of about three and a half million to get Adi. You know, I always remember being out in, um, in the south of France, and I was stood looking at a boat, and this is not going to gain or garner much sympathy from listeners, but I was stood looking at a boat, and it was this beautiful boat that I was going to buy for a couple of million quid, and there was this boat right next to it, which was five million quid. And I'm thinking, Jesus Christ, I've just bought Adiak and Bai. That's three million <laughs> quid. I could have got that five million pound boat for that useless sod that I've just signed that couldn't hit a cow's ass with a banjo. Or Adiak in Bad Bai, as he became named. Yeah, did you buy the boat? No, I didn't. I bought the two million pound boat because I spent the three million quid on And where Adiak is it now? Do you know? The big the boat. boat. No, Eddie, no, Eddie, the little, your Eddie Jordan boat. bought it. Oh, did he? Me, yeah. And the little boat? God only knows. Sailing around the Mediterranean with, not, with me no longer on it. Listen, I want to talk to you as well um, about some of the players you missed out on. Yep. Because clubs go for, even Manchester United, they go for 20 players and they get eight of them, you know, less than that. For the percent. And the lower down you go, you must go for well, more Well, the lure more. of being a club makes the transaction sometimes easier to do. It makes it less accountable because when you own a football club in the way that I did, so it was my money. So it made it difficult at times because I would look at things from a very personal perspective as well as a commercial one. So there are transactions that you would miss out on because of your personal principles. Tim Cahill 
was Great one player. Yeah. Um, that was obviously was playing for Millwall. Millwall was, was owned by a very good friend of mine, Theo Pafitas, who did me no favours in transactions that we did. And I think I pretty much kept Millwall afloat on transfer fees, buying their players left, right and centre. Tim Cahill was not one of them because we had just gotten promoted to the Premier League. Tim had just gotten to an FA Cup final with Millwall playing against Manchester United. A lot of clubs had liked him, but, you know, like the last turkey on the shelf at Christmas at Sainsbury's, everyone had a squeeze of him and no one wanted to buy him. So everyone was looking at Tim thinking, he's a good player, but will he make it in the Premier League? We came in, we said, we'll buy him. And he came to the training ground. And this is a classic example of a player and an agent coming in to represent them, you being prepared to quadruple the player's wages as your starting point, then being convinced that you've got to do five times what you're, what you're already willing to do, and then an agent at the end of it after saying, you know, you were prepared to pay X amount of thousand pound a week. I've over doubled that. I've also put on a sign-on bonus, a loyalty bonus, appearance money, goal bonuses, and every other conceivable bonus to do the very things that you think you're getting in the first place for this basic wage. But by the way, you now work for me, for me doing all of this for you, and I want you to pay me. And that transaction broke down because I refused to pay the agent. Good and for you. I refused to pay the agent. I dealt with Theo, paid Theo, or was agreeing to pay Theo far more than I wanted to pay for the player. I was paying the player far more than I had understood that I would have to pay for the player or been led to believe. And now I was being asked to pay for the agent a fee for achieving precisely nothing for me. I think in that instance, we were being used as a stalking horse because really Millwall, my mate, wanted to sell him to Everton for more money. Yeah. And it was more likely he was going to land at Everton than Crystal Palace. But, you know, that was a transaction... That might have helped Palace in the long run. You look at other players that we had opportunities to do deals with. Michael Carrick was one. You know, when he was at West Ham. Interestingly for me, given the demise of my relationship with Ian Dowie, I had committed to West Ham to buy the player. I'd agreed with West Ham to buy the player, but the player wouldn't even talk to the manager. Because sometimes players will only play for certain managers or only come to certain clubs. And sometimes it doesn't matter whether the owner wants to buy him or whether the owner is prepared to fund the wages. If he doesn't want to play for a certain club or a certain manager, I had it with Dean Ashton. It was myself... And Norwich, and I did something that sounds incredibly naive, but I thought it was incredibly clever. He was at Crewe, yeah? He was at Crewe, Dean, and a very good player. And both Norwich and Palace and one other club, I forget the third club, were after Dean. So I had this brainstorm. Why don't we all get together and agree a price rather than cut our own throats? Brilliant. Go to Crewe and say, each one of us is bidding X amount of million pounds for this player. Let him choose who he wants to come to. I didn't realise that A... Norwich would break that agreement straight away. And B, Dario Grady, who was the, chair, was the manager of crew, loathed me and did his level best to make sure Dean Ashton would never come to Palace. And I'm, I know that to be true because Dean told me. So those are transactions that sometimes you just can't make happen, doesn't matter how much you want them to happen. You know, and, and, and those two players, I think, would have been quite instrumental. You know, there were other players that we, that we spoke to over the years that we would like to have gotten. You know, we, we had an opportunity at one point to talk to Matthew Letizier very early. Wow in my time at Palace, because Glenn Cockrell was the assistant manager. Knew him. Whether he'd have come or not is another matter. But you miss as many as you get. We had strange transactions then. We had Gabriel Heinzer. The Manchester United Manchester United, Manchester United defender. couldn't sell players to Liverpool. They just couldn't and wouldn't, and it would never happen. This was the famous time when Heinzer really wanted to go to Liverpool. Yeah. but th- There was no parallel universe where Man United were going to sell to Liverpool. Yet someone representing Heinzer tried to get us to buy Heinzer from Manchester United and flip, him. and flip him straight into Liverpool and take a turn on it. I mean, I phoned David Gill and told him and expected some, some gratitude for it, didn't get any. But, you know, it's a very strange and sometimes murky business. And at the centre of all of it, often, and often the most divisive, and they're not all bad, are football agents. 
You have a reputation for being the most outspoken of all the previous owners of football clubs about the role of agents. Now, let's start with the usual thing. You have an agent, I have an agent. That's the way the world works, and mm-hmm. a good agent is a good thing to have. Um, your objections to them have become sort of part of the folklore of owning and running a football club, and I st- nobody seems to me to have, uh, to have stood up to them since you. What is it that the bad agents are doing that's so destructive to the game? Well, I mean, I ran across quite a lot of them, you know, both good and bad, and I was very strident, and I and I maintain my stridency, but I think the game has changed, and I think they are a necessary evil. I said they were a necessary evil at the time to say serve a greater good, and I saw no greater good. I think now the business of acquiring football players, you can't unring that bell. They're there, they're in between the wall and the wallpaper, and you're not going to get rid of them. So it's more sensible to be able to try and pick the riders and runners and be able to deal with football agents that you can work with rather than take the blanket stance that I took at one point. I changed my direction of travel. You know, the, the Smith brothers owned a company called First Arsis. I bought shares in their business primarily so I could remind them every time they did a deal that I wasn't prepared to pay 5% commission because I was a shareholder, right? And leverage my money back one way or the other. But my view was there was nothing wrong with football agents as long as they were representing their client. Football players, all of them know what they want. They are capable of negotiating it. But they would rather send in their stooge to be able to take the bad news to somebody, whether that's a contractual renewal or it's a move that they want or it's a club that they're signing for. You know, I even remember one of my favourite players of all time was a virtual disengaged individual, which was Andrew Johnson, who sat through the negotiation when I first signed him from Birmingham, disinterested in having any conversation with me as his new employer. Yet four years later... We've got relegated, and Andrew is being told as an England international, you are staying at this football club, you're not going where you want to go, because I'm your chairman, I'm taking my medicine of getting relegated, you're part of that little gang that got me relegated, you're staying too, against the wills of his agent, against the will of his agent, Leon Angel, who was trying to get him a move. So I was very strong about it, but it doesn't seem to have served football particularly well, because when regulation was coming in to make agency more transparent, to make it more visible, to make people understand where the money goes, because it's the one part of football that doesn't seem to have to pay to be part of it. If I own a football club, I've got to pay to own that football club. I've got to pay league levies for my transfer receipts, for my uh, gate receipts, for my turnover as a football club. I have to pay money into the football family. As footballers, okay, it's two and six, but you have to pay to be part of a union. You know, every aspect of football seems the to pans, have to the pay. Fans pay to go through the, the door to pay. watch on TV. The only people that seem to get the, all the upside and none of the downside, besides perhaps carrying their players' man bags and booking them nightclubs or organising their car insurance, are the agents. And I never understood that. And I feel it's something that's been lost to the game. And I don't think we can unring that bell because the regulations have actually gone backwards. And now players, back in the day, in the mid-2000s, a player couldn't be represented as the same as a club. It had to be represent either the club or the player, so they couldn't be representing both sides. That's now all gone. So you get, in the end, and this is an extreme example. It's the example everyone always uses. The yeah. transfer of Paul Pogba, Pogba from Juventus yeah. to Manchester United... If you think about it as a tug of war, they're all on one end of the rope, aren't they? What? Juventus wanted the money, United wanted the player, yeah. he wanted to go back. How could some person earn €40 million? Euros? Well, I think that's so much to do about third-party ownership as well. That's about the controlling influence in a player's economic value, and sometimes agents are in that mix. And I'm not so against that. I'm against lack of transparency. The biggest element of football that maintains a level of, of disengagement for me is corruption. And a lot of corruption comes from a certain segment of football. And if you can, if you make football transparent, if you make what agents receive and who they pay it to and where it goes to transparent, you will remove 
90% of the corruption in football. Which of all the transfers that you were personally involved in do you now get the most satisfaction from? A player that you just came to like or made money for Palace, something that you've, you're proud of? Look, I mean, there were transactions that I did that I didn't like. I didn't like Spurs' conduct over Wayne Routledge when when Daniel Levy was operating in a certain way and a player that I developed was couldn't be transferred to Spurs because it's 10 to 12, Daniel, we can't do this transfer. Oh, no, no, the player is sitting outside White Hart Lane. Oh, oh, is he now? OK, well, that transfer definitely won't be happening. Or there's transfers like Andrew Johnson where, you know, Clinton Morrison was a player that I'd brought into our team at Palace. Well, he, actually, that's not fair. He was already in the first team, but I'd enhanced him by giving him a new contract. He'd gone on his talent to take him forward, and I'd sold him to Birmingham. In exchange, Andrew Johnson had come. And Andrew Johnson was one of those players that restored your value in the integrity of footballers, that he was going to do what he said rather than it all being a one-way transaction. You pay him, and maybe he'll do it if he feels like it. And when we got relegated, as I said, Andrew was an England international. And like most top players, if the club gets relegated, they want to abdicate themselves from the responsibility of that and move on to passes anew. Of course they do. I wasn't going to have that, but what I got from Andrew was complete understanding of that. And we did a move a year later, which A, achieved more value for Palace, but B, showed, I think, the football fraternity that actually you can work with your players. It's not all a one-way transaction. Not everyone's a Riyad Mahrez that gets to down their tools and do what they want. There are certain players, if you communicate properly, and work with players properly and make them own their own thinking and accountable for their own actions that aren't just going to tell you what they're going to do and when they're going to do it. So I think the Andrew Johnson transfer is one that sits out for me because Palace got a good fee out of it. Um, And it was an equitable solution that worked for both the football club and the individual, and very rarely is it a two-way transaction like that. I noticed that in Riyad, we've already talked about Alexis Sanchez's one going sideways. I noticed that Riyad Mahrez, he's now starting to complain he's not getting enough minutes at Manchester City. It's amazing how... You read what you sow, don't you? It's amazing how many of the the transfers where a player forces them through don't actually work out to the player's benefit uh, in the long run. Final question, Simon. Transfer deadline day. Our colleague over at TalkSport, Jim White, is uh, staring down the barrel with his his yellow tie on. Do you, at that moment, those 24 hours as the clock ticks down, do you miss not being involved? Or are you sitting there going, oh, my God, thank God, I don't have to go through all that nonsense again? A a bit of both. Again, I go back to the opening gambit of the two transfer windows. The August transfer window is about optimism. It's about building for something. The January transfer window is about preserving or panicking. And then you are in a situation where you know as an owner that you're being leveraged. You're being leveraged by a selling club. You're being leveraged by the player. And more often than not, you're being leveraged by your own biggest ally, supposedly your own manager. And often you get to read about that in the press. So I always found my ideals were to try and be organised, to try and get my business done as early as I possibly could. But by the very nature of the football business, which is often mayhem at its centre, it's very difficult. So I often try to be out of the way. And I did, Danny, very early on, build a relationship where I put chief executives and directors of football in front of me because I couldn't deal with some of the nonsense. And it also gave me the opportunity not to be in the room when I had to bid against myself. Because if you're the money in a room, then you can't walk out and say, I've got to defer to someone else. If you've got a chief executive that's got a budget, he can. So I try to steer away from from bad business, but judging by some of the things I've told you, it doesn't matter if I did them early or late, I did some bad business. But for the business of football, which is now show business, the transfer window is an exciting commodity, even though I still think it's slightly immature in the way it operates. (laughs) 
placing a bet? It's exhausting running around looking for the best odds. Don't waste your breath. It's time you check Marathon Bet. Before you place your ACA this week, check Marathon Bet first. You may find we're best priced. And better odds mean bigger winnings. Download the Marathon Bet app or visit marathonbet.co.uk. 18plusbegambleaware.org. Yeah, this is the part of the podcast where our good friends at Marathon Bet have given us a certain amount of money. We choose three results. If they all come in, the money goes to the charity of our choice. I have to say, last week we were magnificent, Simon, and just missed out on getting any money from the charities <laughs> at all. Yeah, great. Um, so uh, I'll, I'll let you go first and choose from the fixtures this weekend, the Premier League, actually. What three fixtures do you hope you can predict the result of in order uh, to make some money for charity? OK, my three fixtures. Quite why I've chosen a win for this one, given I saw them on Saturday, Cardiff versus Fulham. I'm seeing Cardiff versus Crystal Palace. So I think Neil, given his relationship with Crystal Palace, and I don't think there's a lot of love lost there, I think Cardiff will be up for this game and there's a win there for Cardiff. Wow. I just got a feeling... Newcastle and Liverpool, I just think with the history of this particular game and the Keegan relationship between the two clubs, there's something on this game that tells me... And not, Benitez. And Benitez, of course, absolutely. And Benitez, of course, that Newcastle are going to get a point off Liverpool and wow. subsequently scupper their, their Premier League aspirations. And the final one, which I think is an absolute banker, is Man City will beat Leicester. OK, thank you for those. Manchester City, of course, just win everything, don't they, at the moment? For me, I had Spurs, my banker, last year, week. They lost to West Ham, so I'm going to give them a chance to redeem themselves. If they can win at Bournemouth, it would mean that they could uh, relax before the end of the season, having qualified at least in one way for the Champions League. The second one I've got down here is a win for Chelsea against Watford, just because they too will want to be making sure they get into European football. And the third one I've got here is Huddersfield against Manchester United. Now, it's a bit obvious to say Manchester United are going to win. I just wanted to say something about Huddersfield. They are a terrible team, but they have not lacked any spirit, I don't think. Those are our three uh, bets for the weekend with Marathon Bets, and I hope we'll be giving a load of money to charity. 18 plus, be gamble aware. So that's it, episode two of the Marathon Bets Boot Room to the Boardroom podcast with me, Danny Kelly, and him, Simon Jordan. Uh, what do you want to talk about next week, Simon? One of my favourite subjects, Danny, given I was perceived to be a manager killer, I think we'll talk about managers next week. You've got a certain amount of them to talk about. Them, if, we if, if we only talk about the ones you sacked and hired. It won't be a quiet show, I, I doubt. All right, I'm really looking forward to it. So next week we're going to be going through everything to do with those mythical creatures, managers, coaches, head coaches, call them what you want. If you've got any questions for Simon and myself, don't forget you can send them to Marathon Bet on Twitter. Bye-bye for now.